are listening to Demise, the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. We're getting into part two of this series. It may be the last part. I don't know. I do know that more people are listening to my episode on Glenn Campbell than Sylvia Plath, so that's interesting. But before we get into the bell jar, we have some housekeeping to take care of with the podcast. First of all, I have decided that I am going to cover my fourth novel, Birch, on the podcast. And it may actually be a few more episodes than you expect. See, out of my four novels, Birch is my worst selling. But I didn't really do a whole lot to promote it outside of Twitter and I did read some of it on the podcast, and I think that some people think that because it's technically a series, even though it's not, that they have to read the first three books, and that's just a lot of homework to get to Birch. Secondly, if you would like to support the podcast, because I don't make any money from this podcast because I don't do ads. So, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go buy Birch on Amazon. You can buy any of my books. I have poetry, I have short stories, I have novels. On Amazon, just search for Patrick Attaway, A-T-T-W-A-Y. Or you can listen to my music by streaming Lurking Vowel on Spotify or wherever you stream music. I now have a Substack. I don't make money from it, but I am writing non-fiction essays and some of my short stories are on there i have a poem on there i'm going to put more poetry on there so go find my Substack. it's on my link tree if you don't want to find my link tree you just go to patrickattaway.substack.com i think that's how the url works it might be Substack slash patrick attaway i'm not sure at the moment but i want to talk about something that i've been wanting to talk about all week so For the past few years, I'm not going to say this person's name, but if you know me, you may not even know who this is, to be fair. But it's someone who rose to fame on YouTube, and I was supporting them, and I don't mean I was just watching their YouTube videos and subscribed to their channels. I was spending money monthly on a subscription and due to recent statements amongst so many other things I've decided to no longer support them the reason why I want to talk about this is because it is important how you express yourself publicly and people will distance themselves from you as a result of that And this person has not been putting out content aside from the thing that I'm technically paying for, which I stopped paying for. I canceled my subscription. This person has not been putting out material on their YouTube channels that I've wanted to watch in a long time. So I was in for the long haul, but, you know, their recent actions with their fan base, this person will lash out against people. Another reason why I'm not saying their name. I'm not even telling you their gender. But this person has a very bad temper towards both their fandom and towards people that they work with as well. And I respect this person a lot. 
I mean, they are a creative genius. However, they recently said something about President Biden. Now, I don't care if you like or dislike President Biden. You can dislike the president all you want. But my political perspective has been well established. I wrote a book called Surviving New America. And it outlines a lot of my political philosophy in that book. And I generally do not vote for Democrats because I agree with them entirely. For instance, I didn't vote for Stacey Abrams. I voted against Brian Kemp. I despise Brian Kemp as a politician. And I despise everything that this man stands for in office and how he achieved. Well, here's the thing. There's been evidence of voter fraud, but at the same time, I don't know that Stacey Abrams would have won regardless. And I made the mistake of not voting in 2018 because I didn't like Kemp or Stacey Abrams. There's still things about Stacey Abrams that I don't like. Biden, on the other hand, I thought was the best candidate to go head-to-head with Trump back in 2016, and it, it didn't happen. So I was very excited when he ran in 2020, and I think that he's actually done a phenomenal job in office. And... People who blame Biden for all the, the shit that's been going down, they've been keeping their head under a rock for a while, I suppose, because the fallout of COVID-19 in this country is not the fault of Biden. And we are still recovering from this pandemic. I think that a lot of people forget that. I think that when... That when a president gets into office, the, the same thing happens. No one wants to hold the previous person accountable for the actions that affect the new administration. And then there's the other side of that coin where they think that everything that happens after a person is in the office is their responsibility. Just totally ignoring the last four or maybe eight years. So, This person compared Biden to a person that recently Dave Chappelle, basically, I won't say the word that comes to mind, but this person essentially compared Biden to Herschel Walker in an unfavorable way, essentially by saying Herschel Walker was more cognizant than Biden. And as we all know, Chappelle went after Walker uh, on his SNL monologue because Herschel Walker is, there's something legitimately wrong with that man. To make matters worse, in one of the most critical elections in history, this person admitted to not voting. They said they didn't want to, and then they thought, well, maybe I'll go do it, and then they just didn't do it. So if you're listening and you know who I'm talking about, don't be a fucking snitch because 
I'm not worried about them finding out that I'm talking about them because I'm not saying their name. I'm not saying what they do beyond YouTube. But it, it's it, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I'm saying this because we need to be mindful of things that we say as creators. And if we're not well, then we need to really be mindful of what we say. Let's get into the bell jar. I have chapter 10 bookmarked here on page 112. The face in the mirror looked like a sick Indian. I dropped the compact into my pocketbook and stared out of the train window. Like a colossal junkyard, the swamps and back lots of Connecticut flashed past one broken down fragment bearing no relation to another. What a hodgepodge the world was. I glanced down at my unfamiliar skirt and blouse. The skirt was a green dirndl with tiny black, white, and electric blue shapes swarming around it, and it stuck out like a lampshade. Instead of sleeves, the white eyelet blouse had frills at the shoulder, floppy as the wings of a new angel. I'd forgotten to save any day clothes from the ones I left, or rather let, fly over New York. So Betsy had traded me a blouse and skirt for my bathrobe with the cornflowers on it. A wan reflection of myself, white wings, brown ponytail and all, ghosted over the landscape. Pollyanna cowgirl, I said out loud. A woman in the seat opposite looked up from her magazine. I hadn't, at the last moment, felt like washing off the two diagonal lines of dried blood that marked my cheeks. They seemed touching and rather spectacular, and I thought I would carry them around with me like the relic of a dead lover till they wore off their own accord. Of course, if I smiled or moved my face much, the blood would flake away in no time. So I kept my face immobile, and when I had to speak, I spoke through my teeth without disturbing my lips. I didn't really see why people should look at me. Plenty of people looked queerer than I did. We have very rich language, and the way that she describes what she's wearing and how it's almost as if she's imagining all of this, it reminds me vaguely of one of the chapters in Invisible Man where the I Am is describing going to church on campus. It's very dreamlike. And for her to just say Pollyanna cowgirl out loud, I mean, she's obviously recovering psychologically from a very traumatic experience. And the fact that she thinks that it's perfectly sensible to have blood on her face. Well, again, I'm getting vague reflections later on with American Psycho. I'm sure Brett Easton Ellis has read The Bell Jar. The gray suitcase rode on the rack over my head, empty except for the 30 best short stories of the year. I hate those books. A white plastic sunglasses case and two dozen avocado pears, a parting present from Doreen. The pears were unripe, so they would keep well. And whenever I lifted my suitcase up or down or simply carried it along, they cannoned from one end to the other with a special little thunder of their own. 
Route 128, the conductor bawled. The domesticated wilderness of pine, maple, and oak rolled to a halt and stuck in the frame of the train window like a bad picture. My suitcase grumbled and bumped as I negotiated the long aisle. See, this even more so than a lot of other writers, her language is like poetry. The domesticated wilderness of pine, maple, and oak rolled to a halt and stuck in the frame of the train window. I mean, that is something that doesn't easily roll off the tongue, but it's very lyrical. And it gives you the image of what she's seeing. Because I don't think that a lot of people put that much thought into their surroundings, their everyday surroundings. My mother was waiting by the glove gray Chevrolet. Why, lovey, what's happened to your face? Cut myself, I said briefly, and crawled into the back seat after my suitcase. I didn't want her staring at me the whole way home. The upholstery felt slippery and clean. My mother climbed behind the wheel and tossed a few letters into my lap, then turned her back. The car purred into life. I think I should tell you right away, she said, and I could see bad news in the set of her neck. You didn't make that riding course. The air punched out of my stomach. All through June, the riding course had stretched before me like a bright, safe bridge over the dull gulf of the summer. Now... I saw it torture and dissolve, and a body in a white blouse and green skirt plummet into the gap. Then my mouth shaped itself sourly. I had expected it. I slunk down onto the middle of my spine, my nose level with the rim of the window, and watched the houses of outer Boston glide by. As the houses grew more familiar, I slunk still lower. I thought it was very important not to be recognized. The gray padded car roof closed over my head like the roof of a prison van and the white shining identical clapboard houses with their interstices of well-groomed green proceeded past one bar after another in a large but escape-proof cage. I had never spent a summer in the suburbs before. So... This part reminds me of the little-known film, Adult World, which I love. It's got Emma Roberts and um, John Cusack. And if you're a writer, I I recommend watching it. It was recommended to me by a fellow writer who is really into Sylvia Plath, someone who I was slightly romantically involved with. And this also reminds me of her. Someone who, similarly to uh, Sylvia Plath, I believe she tried to unalive herself. And she dealt with um, some time spent in a mental facility. And to the best of my recollection, it was the result of her having a mental breakdown while she was at SCAD. And then she stopped eating and fast forward to 2015 when we met and she is all but mute. And so we communicated uh, through text and she turned out to not be a great person. But 
fascinating at the same time. The soprano creak of carriage wheels punished my ear. Sun seeping through the blinds filled the bedroom with a sulfurous light. I didn't know how long I'd slept, but I felt one big twitch of exhaustion. The twin bed next to mine was empty and unmade. At seven, I had heard my mother get up, slip into her clothes, and tiptoe out of the room. Then the buzz of the orange squeaker sounded from downstairs. I said squeaker, it's squeezer. Listen, I'm in this room, and I'm having to hold this paper back up to my face. I can't make the text bigger, so this is another case for me reading on my Kindle, but the issue with reading on my Kindle is that it's harder to keep my place in the book because sometimes I accidentally touch the edge, and I'm in the middle of reading a sentence, and that just breaks everything. So the safest bet with the podcast is a paperback. Then sink water ran from the tap and dishes clinked as my mother dried them and put them back in the cupboard. Then the front door opened and shut. Then the car door opened and shut, and the motor went broom broom and edging off with a crunch of gravel faded into the distance. Not one of Sylvia's best written lines. My mother was teaching shorthand and typing to a lot of city college girls and wouldn't be home till the middle of the afternoon. The carriage wheels squeaked past again. Somebody seemed to be wheeling a baby back and forth under my window. I slipped out of the bed and onto the rug and quietly on my hands and knees crawled over to see who it was. Have you ever done this before? So I work from home. And sometimes through my Bose noiseless headphones, I will hear something from outside. And I will run to the end of the hallway like I'm 12 again, I'm 31 now, shouldn't be running throughout the house for uh, many reasons, but uh, then I will creep over to the blinds and I will look out. And through the blinds, I can actually see a lot of the neighborhood, um, at least on my street. And usually it's someone, we have these jackasses that live across the street from us. One of them has a big pickup truck, bigger than mine. And the doors on pickup trucks seem to slam louder than anything else. And this person's engine is just a little too loud. And then there's someone that lives down the street who has grandchildren who constantly show up in their pickup trucks. And for a while we had two people who lived across the street that had two pickup trucks. And it's always obnoxious the way that they rev their engines, the way that they slam their doors shut... You don't need to be doing that, okay? If you want to drive a pickup truck and slam your doors and hoot and holler and whatnot, you don't need to be living in a suburban neighborhood. You need to be living out in the country. Ours was a small white clabbered house set in the middle of a small green lawn on the corner of two peaceful suburban streets. But in spite of the little maple trees planted at intervals around our property, Anybody passing along the sidewalk could glance up at the second-story windows and see just what was going on. This was brought home to me by our next-door neighbor, a spiteful woman named Miss Okenden. Mrs. Okenden was a retired nurse who had just married her third husband. The other two died in curious circumstances, and she spent an inordinate amount of time peering from behind the starched white curtains of her windows. She had called my mother up 
twice about me. Once to report that I was sitting in front of the house for an hour under the streetlight, kissing somebody in a blue Plymouth, and once to say that I had better pull the blinds down in my room because she had seen me half-naked getting ready for bed. With great care, I raised my eyes to the level of the windowsill. A woman not five feet tall with grotesque protruding stomach was wheeling an old black baby carriage down the street. Two or three small children of various sizes, all pale with smudgy eyes and bare smudgy knees, wobbled along in the shadow of her skirts. When I read stuff like this, where the author is using the same phrases or same words in the, in the same paragraph, you know, we can often get self-conscious about using the same word twice in a paragraph. It's a stylistic choice most of the time. Because... You know, yesterday I wrote this long essay about my time working at Walmart, and there was a paragraph where I used pretty much the same phrase twice in the same paragraph, and I did it on purpose. But to have it in the same sentence in the same paragraph, that's a bold choice, I have to say, because smudgy is not really a word that people use all that often anyway. I'm drinking my red, white, and blue sparkling water from my Copper Yeti today. I haven't reported on my drinking lately, but that's what I'm having today. A serene, almost religious smile lit up the woman's face. Her head tilted happily back like a sparrow egg perched on a duck egg. She smiled into the sun. I'm also nervous about the way that I describe character smiling and things. I don't just want to say that they smiled. Bukowski wouldn't be afraid to do it. But he could stylistically get away with it. Whereas, you know, one of the main complaints about Twilight is that Stephanie Mayer constantly had her character sighing. So you don't want to be describing too much of what they're doing with their face and their mouth hole. It was Dodo Conway. Dodo Conway was a Catholic who had gone to Bernard and then married an architect who had gone to Columbia and was also a Catholic. They had a big rambling house up in the street from us, set behind a morbid facade of pine trees and surrounded by scooters, tricycles, doll carriages, toy fire trucks, baseball bats, badminton nets, croquet wickets, hamster cages, and cocker spaniel puppies, the whole sprawling paraphernalia of suburban childhood. Okay, I'm going to point the fact out that she knows a lot about her neighbors. I don't know shit about most of my neighbors, okay? I could do research on my neighbors quite easily, and I won't tell you how, but I don't really know the names of the people who live around me for the most part. Now, there was a time when someone's religion got brought up whenever you you spoke about them to other people. They go to this church. They believe in this. They're of this denomination. It still comes up in some conversations. When I was in high school, there was this girl in my psychology class who was just obviously not like the rest of us in some sense. And she was a cute girl and everything, but she was just awkward. And I remember she was talking about her sister. I think it was her sister. It may have been her cousin. But the only thing that she could bring up about her sister and her brother-in-law was the fact that they went to a certain church at a certain place and they believed in a certain denomination 
Why the rest of us really needed to know that, I don't know. But it's an interesting detail that people bring up. And here we have Sylvia Plath doing it. I don't need to know that these characters are Catholic, by the way. Them being Catholic honestly doesn't really tell me much about them. This kind of writing is all well and good when you're just sitting with a book and getting cozy and reading it by yourself, but it doesn't make for great podcasting, so I'm going to skip a few pages. I leaned back and read what I'd written. It seemed lively enough, and I was quite proud of the bit about the drops of sweat like insects, only I had the dim impression I'd probably read it somewhere else a long time ago. I sat like that for about an hour trying to think about what would come out next? And in my mind, the barefoot doll in her mother's old yellow nightgown sat and stared into space as well. Why, honey, don't you want to get dressed? My mother took care never to tell me to do anything. She would only reason with me sweetly, like one intelligent, mature person with another. It's almost three in the afternoon. I'm writing a novel, I said. I haven't got time to change out of this and change into that. I lay on the couch on the breezeway and shut my eyes. I could hear my mother clearing the typewriter and the papers from the card table and laying out the silver for supper, but I didn't move. At any rate, I'd be lucky if I wrote a page a day. Then I knew what the trouble was. I needed experience. How could I write about life when I'd never had a love affair, or a baby, or even seen anybody die? A girl I knew had just won a prize for a short story about her adventures among the pygmies in Africa. How could I compete with that sort of thing? By the end of supper, my mother had convinced me I should study shorthand in the evenings. Then I would kill two birds with one stone, writing a novel and learning something practical as well. I would also be saving a lot of money. That same evening, my mother unearthed an old blackboard from the cellar and set it up on the breezeway. Then she stood at the blackboard and scribbled little curlicues in white chalk while I sat in the chair and watched. At first, I felt hopeful. I thought I might learn shorthand in no time, and when the freckled lady in the scholarship's office asked me why I hadn't worked to earn money in July and August the way you were supposed to if you were a scholarship girl... I could tell her I had taken a free shorthand course instead so I could support myself right after college. The only thing was, when I tried to picture myself in some job briskly jobbing down line after line of shorthand, my mind went blank. There wasn't one job I felt like doing where you could use shorthand, and as I sat there and watched the white chalkboard curlicues blurred into senselessness. We're going to move ahead a little bit to chapter 11. Dr. Gordon's waiting room was hushed and beige. The walls were beige, and the carpets were beige, and the upholstered chairs and sofas were beige. There were no mirrors or pictures, only certificates from different medical schools with Dr. Gordon's name in Latin hung about the walls. Pale green loopy ferns and spiked leaves of much darker green filled the ceramic pots on the end table, and the coffee table, and the magazine table. There's a lot of repetition in the language here, and also another reference to green, which we saw earlier. Symbolically, I'm not sure what that means, but maybe we'll come up with a a solution or an answer or some sort of thesis later. 
At first, I wondered why the room felt so safe. Then I realized it was because there were no windows. The air conditioning made me shiver. I was still wearing Betsy's white blouse and dirndl skirt. They drooped a bit low now, as I hadn't washed them in my three weeks at home. The sweaty cotton gave off a sour but friendly smell. So at this point, Sylvia is not keeping herself well. And she's spending a lot of time at home. She's trying to write. And she's not really getting anywhere. And she's having trouble sleeping. My mother told me I must have slept. It was impossible not to sleep in all that time. But if I slept, it was with my eyes wide open. For I had followed the green luminous course of the second hand and the minute hand and the hour hand of the bedside clock through their circles and semicircles every night for seven nights without missing a second or a minute or an hour. Sounds like she's manic. The reason I hadn't washed my clothes or my hair was because it seemed so silly. I saw the days of the year stretching ahead like a series of bright white boxes and separating one box from another was sleep like a black shade. Only for me, the long perspective of shades that set off one box from the next had suddenly snapped up and I could see day after day after day glaring ahead of me like a white broad infinitely desolate avenue it seemed silly to wash one day when I would only have to wash again the next it made me tired just to think of it I wanted to do everything once and for all and be through with it Dr. Gordon twiddled a silver pencil your mother tells me you're upset I curled in the cavernous leather chair and faced Dr. Gordon across an acre of highly polished desk. Dr. Gordon waited. He tapped his pencil, tap, 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 across the neat green field of his blotter. His eyelashes were so long and thick they looked artificial, black plastic reeds fringing two green glacial pools. Dr. Gordon's features were so perfect he was almost pretty. I hated them the minute I walked in through the door. Suppose you try and tell me what you think is wrong. I turned the words over suspiciously like round, sea-polished pebbles that might suddenly put out a claw and change into something else. What did I think was wrong? They made it sound as if nothing was really wrong. I only thought it was wrong. In a dull, flat voice to show I was not beguiled by his good looks or his family photograph, I told Dr. Gordon about not sleeping and not eating and not reading. I didn't tell him about the handwriting which bothered me most of all. That morning I tried to write a letter to Doreen down in West Virginia asking whether I could come and live with her and maybe get a job at her college waiting on table or something. But when I took up my pen... My hand made big jerky letters like those of a child and the lines sloped down the page from left to right almost diagonally as if they were loops of string tying on the paper and someone had come along and blown them askew. I knew I couldn't send a letter like that so I tore it up in little pieces and put them in my pocketbook next to my all-purpose compact in case a psychiatrist has to see them. I have been in some bad mental states, but I've never gotten to a point where my handwriting didn't make sense or 
I was doing things like ripping up shit, you know, my self-destruction was through either giving things away, selling things or trading things, stuff like that, acting in on impulsivity and, you know, staying indoors for days on end, avoiding contact with other people for extended periods of time. But she's around her mother and I suspect that one thing that may have actually benefited her was a little bit more isolation, even from her mother, even though she was having trouble sleeping. I've had trouble sleeping too, but I've never been up for what felt like seven days in a row before. She sees Dr. Gordon for a while and this is the outcome. I watched my mother grow smaller and smaller until she disappeared into the door of Dr. Gordon's office building. Then I watched her grow larger and larger as she came back to the car. Well, I could tell she had been crying. My mother didn't look at me. She started the car. Then she said as we glided under the cool, deep sea shade of the elms, Dr. Gordon doesn't think you've improved at all. He thinks you should have some shock treatments at his private hospital in Walton. I felt a sharp stab of curiosity, as if I had just read a terrible newspaper headline about somebody else. Does he mean live there? No, my mother said. I thought she must be lying. You must tell me the truth, I said, or I'll never speak to you again. Don't I always tell you the truth, my mother said, and burst into tears. The one thing that I'm noticing here is that it doesn't seem that Sylvia wants to get better. She doesn't seem to want to pull herself out of her state. She's lost. She doesn't know how, but she also doesn't really want to. There's no desire there. There's no desire to get better from what I see. And people are free to disagree with me, but what I'm seeing here is someone who is lost and they don't have the ability to want to get out. I mean... I've been there too. If I were to hazard a guess, most of the trauma that serves as a seed in her life for all the other trauma originates with her father and his early passing and this feeling of isolation. She feels isolated amongst her peers, isolated in New York, and now isolated at home. And she's not really sure how to to kind of get back into society the way everyone else is. But like I said, there doesn't seem to be any desire on her part to change that. She wants to be part of her little world where she gets to write and go to school and communicate with her friends via letter. But that is, in a sense, a fiction that she's creative and created in her head. Because... Once her friends like Doreen see the state that she she's in and she tries to hide that from Doreen by not sending her a letter, they'll want to cut off contact with her because in this time period, there wasn't a whole lot of good nature towards women suffering from mental illness. And instead they resorted to things like shock treatment, jumping ahead to 143. I lay down on the bed. The wall-eyed nurse came back. She unclasped my watch and dropped it in her pocket. 
Then she started tweaking the hairpins from my hair. Dr. Gordon was unlocking the closet. He dragged out a table on wheels with a machine on it and rolled it behind the head of the bed. The nurse started swabbing my temples with a smelly grease. As she leaned over to reach the side of my head nearest the wall, her fat breasts muffled my face like a cloud or a pillow. A vague, medicinal stench emancipated from her flesh. Don't worry, the nurse grinned down at me. Their first time, everybody's scared to death. I tried to smile, but my skin had gone stiff like parchment. Dr. Gordon was fitting two metal plates on either side of my head. He buckled them into place with a strap that dented my forehead and gave me a wire to bite. I shut my eyes. There was a brief silence, like an indrawn breath. Then something bent down and took hold of me and shook me like the end of the world. Wee! It shrilled through an air crackling with blue light, and with each flash, a great jolt drubbed me till I thought my bones would break and the sap fly out of me like a split plant. I wondered what terrible thing it was that I had done. Similarly traumatic to the rape scene earlier in this. This is just something that's done to her. She's not given a, like a countdown. (laughs) They just put her in the bed. They get her ready and then they do it. There's no, this won't hurt. There's no, this will only be a moment. Nothing. The nurse says, don't worry, but... The doctor's just doing his job as if she's not even a human being. And again, this is the way women are being treated for their mental health. I was sitting in a wicker chair holding a small cocktail glass of tomato juice. I bet that tasted metallic. The watch had been replaced on my wrist, but it looked odd. Then I realized it had been fastened upside down. I sensed the unfamiliar positioning of the hairpins in my hair. How do you feel? An old metal floor lamp surfaced in my mind. One of the few relics of my father's study. It was surrounded by a copper bell which held the light bulb, and from which a frayed, tiger-colored cord ran down the length of the metal stand to a socket in the wall. This also reminds me of Invisible Man again, because there is a chapter where he receives shock treatment, So, this was something that was just done to people. And I don't know that they really showed any sort of promise. I know that it was sometimes done kind of in lieu of a lobotomy. But at the same time, that is not a good treatment either. One day, I decided to move this lamp from the side of my mother's bed to my desk at the other end of the room. The cord would be long enough, so I didn't unplug it. I closed both hands around the lamp and the fuzzy cord and gripped them tight. Then something leapt out of the lamp in a blue flash and shook me till my teeth rattled, and I tried to pull my hands off, but they were stuck, and I screamed, or a scream was torn from my throat, for I didn't recognize it, but heard it soar and quaver in the air like a violent disembodied spirit. Then my hands jerked free and I fell back onto my mother's bed, a small hole blackened as if Pencil lead pitted to the center of my right palm. How do you feel?
All right. But I didn't. I felt terrible. Which college did you say you went to? I said what college it was. Ah, Dr. Gordon's face lighted with a slow, almost tropical smile. They had a WAC station up there, didn't they, during the war? As I'm rereading this book, I'm realizing a few things. Number one, I've read it two or three times before, and I don't really remember much of anything that I'm going over here. So that's a drawback. And while Platt's writing is actually spectacular, this is not making for great podcasting. (laughs) So here's the deal. If you guys want me to continue reading this at another time, let me know. But I don't think that I'm actually doing a very good job of it, to be fair. And I, I may not even be the most qualified person to do it. If you just enjoy hearing me read the the bell jar, that's great. But I love Sylvia Plath too much to continue doing this right now, at least. And I really want to move on. I want to get into Birch next week, and we can start that series, and I can talk a lot more in depth about it because, well, I wrote it. After Birch, I want to cover more short works. So... Maybe more David Sedaris, maybe more Bukowski's poetry, maybe more short stories by Percival Everett. I need to broaden my horizons a little bit, admittedly, because, you know, I have very specific taste. And when I look for quality writing, I'm looking for voice, a voice that I relate to, something that appeals to me. So it's not just good prose or good dialogue or first person's perspective. It needs to have something almost unexplainable about it to appeal to me. And, you know, I'm in my thirties and I like what I like and I can read stuff from all over the canon. Of course, I've done it before, but realistically speaking, for the sake of the podcast, I need to pick material that I'm better suited to discuss in this shorter format because the thing is, is that I don't want to stretch the bell jar any further than I should. And that is not only out of respect to you, the listener, but also to Plath. And maybe I'm doing an okay job of it, but at the same time, my heart is not in this right now. So I'm going to get into Birch next week. It's going to be a better show overall, I think. And, you know, We've gone, we've gone over 150 episodes. That's the thing. So I better be good at this by now. At the same time, I don't want the quality to dwindle because I get stuck in the same routine where I'm just reading and then reflecting and then reading and reflecting. I need to be able to entertain you. So we're going to move on. Okay? Okay. So don't be afraid to reach out to me if you're able to and tell me that you hated this or you want me to continue at a later point. I doubt anyone will because no one did with previous series in the past, with the exception of All About the Benjamins by Zev Good. He he wanted me to read even more of that, so that was very flattering. And I might read some of his short stories. 
Anyway, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading, happy writing, have a wonderful week.